Hello and welcome to Books and Badgers. This is Season 3, Episode 1, and we are talking about Matameo, uh, Book 1 of Matameo, Slagar the Cruel. As always, I'm your host, uh, Colin, and with me is host number two, sometimes host number one, uh, Trevor. Trevor, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's been a really good couple of weeks. I'm really happy to be here for Matameo. Yeah, here for Matameo and season three. How are you feeling about season three so far? It's kind of surprising that we've been through two whole books already. Um, I know it's, you know, we're a couple of months into this journey, um, but it's starting to feel a little surreal that we're actually, you know, getting into the real flow of the series now. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh, I feel like with season two, it, took so long because Mossflower is a long book. Um, but at the same time, I'm just kind of shocked <laughs> that we're already in book three in season three. Uh, kind of nuts to think about. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about this first book, Slagar the Cruel. But, you know, before we get into get into the discussion, I got to know what you've been reading, what you've been up to. I mean, I've been up to a lot. Uh, in terms of reading, I haven't had as much time to read lately. It's been kind of slow, but I did just recently finish a book called This Wretched Valley by Jenny Kiefer. I'm having her on Slay House Presents in just a couple weeks. I don't know when the the episode will actually air, uh, but the book comes out in January. And it is the scariest book I think I've read in a very long time. It's about some hikers that go out into the woods in Kentucky to develop what they think is an undiscovered rock wall and uh, just find out that the woods is bad. It's just a bad place and a bad time to be. So juxtaposing a lot of the woodland adventures of Matameo has been really funny because I think that whereas Redwall is like really wholesome and fun and positive, this Wretched Valley is the opposite of all of those things. Yeah, very different from the cozy walls of Redwall, for sure, I, I can imagine. Uh, you've also been really busy with uh, World Fantasy Con that you went to just not too long ago, right? Yeah, I just got back from World Fantasy Con, and it was a really great experience. I got to meet a whole bunch of new writers that I'm really excited about, like Amy Avery, um, Parna Verma, and... A couple of other writers that I've long admired, like Marina Lostetter and Andrea Stewart. So it was a, just a really good kind of fulfilling time to meet some new folks and get really excited about some voices in science fiction and fantasy. So, yeah, that's super awesome. That's really cool. Um, and uh, a lot of those familiar names, I'm I'm super jealous that you got to rub elbows with that group because there's some pretty awesome work out there and some uh, really engaging and and uh, interesting fantasy novels that are coming out. So I bet that was a great time. Yeah, it was it was really cool. We got to do some role playing, uh, which I never thought I'd be able to do. Just sit down and play like a role playing game with a bunch oh, of that's awesome. writers. Yeah, it was really great. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, I am kind of in the same boat. I really haven't been reading much outside of Matameo and Redwall. Um, I have been reading some books for work, which is not interesting enough to kind of mention. 
um but <laughs> uh, but i have uh picked up the the next two novels for uh blue lock and have been reading that because i'm always on this soccer fix while we're in the middle of the premier league season uh and i gotta say this new arc is just not doing it for me it's I, i'm hopeful that it gets a little bit better but I'm also so committed to this series that I'll probably just read any, you know, novel that comes out or, or, or new book that comes out. But yeah, I'm hopeful that it'll, it'll pick up a little bit in the future. It's always disappointing when you come into a long beloved series and find that it just doesn't quite live up to your expectation. Yeah, man, that's how I feel about One Piece. Like, I have so many friends that are like, you should read One Piece and just get in that journey. And I'm just thinking, I just don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I can, can do that. Did you know, Trevor, that our brother-in-law has seen every single episode of One Piece? Not even the abridged version, like the full-on version, every, every episode. Did you know that? I did not. If it's, I mean, this is probably going to blow your mind, but... I remember when the first episodes of One Piece were coming out in high school. Uh, that was, I, I, I was still reading Redwall when the first episodes of One Piece were coming out on the internet. And uh, they weren't even airing in the States. Uh, we just had to torrent them from, you know, some Japanese server somewhere. Yeah, I think we did the same thing with Naruto too, or Naruto, however you say it, uh, where we would just watch the, the dub versions that were burned on CDs through basically the crack pipe of the internet. Like the quality is terrible <laughs> for it, but Hey, you got to get your anime fix in any way possible, I guess. Uh, but we're not here to talk about anime. We're here to talk about badgers and badger Lords and the uh, heroic woodland creatures. So why don't we jump into book one? What do you say, Trevor? Let's go. Book one of Matameo is called Slagar the Cruel. It begins with a prologue where Orlando the Axe, a badger, searches for his daughter Alma, who has been taken by the fox. Orlando vows to avenge whatever has happened to his daughter. What a cool intro. <laughs> I immediately just thought, oh man, Jake's is bringing, bringing home the bacon with this one because um, this the stakes are pretty well laid out in the very beginning of this prologue. And I, I love that we, the first character on a page is a, ba a badger. You know, the Books and Badgers podcast obviously loves that. Um, <laughs> this is such a cool introduction for Orlando. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. Um, for a character that I think looms large over this book quite a bit, it's great to kind of set us up with some action. And this is really a huge distinction from the previous book, which opened with Bella, you know, about to kind of tell a story. Uh, so while we're supposed to take a lot of comfort, I think in Mossflower and knowing that this is really like the story of how a great thing happened, this book really kind of sets up that this is the story of how a really terrible thing happened. And it gives us kind of that sense of urgency right from the prologue. And I, I really like that. I like that it sets a tone for a lot of what we're going to find in this book one. 
Now, I we'll get more we'll get into it a little bit more with the subsequent chapters. But do you think that these chapters are have is this prologue happening in real time? Um or do you think that this happens a little bit later in the timeline of Slagar's travel? No, I think that this actually is kind of the beginning of the book. Um because if we okay. remember Alma is already with Slagar when he shows up at the Abbey um, in just a couple of chapters. So I think this is the kind of kickoff event, like Orlando is already searching for Alma and we're going to learn what that means as the story progresses. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of what I thought as well, but wanted to hear, hear your take on it. Yeah. So in chapter one, Abbey recorder, John Churchmouse delivers the news of an upcoming celebration at Redwall. It's been eight seasons since the war with Clooney concluded, and life in Redwall has returned to its peace and prosperity. It is the summer of the Golden Plain, and John cannot wait to join the other Redwallers in celebrating the season. Yeah, this chapter is kind of an introduction into the time and place since the Re- the Book of Redwall. Um, I, and I think that this is, it's, it's nice that they kind of set up, well, this has happened since we got the last, I don't know, kind of prologue of Redwall and the time that's take place. I am interested in the eight seasons because I think this is a very specific, um, the seasons are referenced a little bit more too, but we're, we're basically looking at what, what would that be? Um, four years in the future. It's two years in the future. Oh, sorry, um, two years. Yeah. But we, we have to consider that the Moss Flower characters, um, they all kind of, they age in seasons, right? So whereas we might qualify this as two years in a human world, for the Moss Flower world, we can kind of consider this to be like a year for them. So eight seasons for them would be the equivalent of, eight years, you know, for, for a human lifespan. Yeah. I'm, I'm super bad at math and didn't even think that there's uh, four seasons in a year. So whoopsie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was, um, uh, Basil kind of references that a little later too, where he's trying to think back and he's like, I think that was eight or nine seasons ago. And I was like, how old is Basil? Because, um, <laughs> you know, what's the average lifespan for a, a rabbit? But um, I really like that they they talk in seasons and back to the, I guess, the purpose of this chapter. I like that we're now getting a frame of reference as to where uh, and when this is taking place in relationship to Redwall. Uh, Redwall, the, the first book. Yeah, I mean, consider that most of the children in this book, um, like Matameo, for example, he'd be eight seasons old. Um, so he's he's kind of like at that cusp of childhood when i think like you're you're really growing up right you're really kind of maturing um it it would be akin to like you know going into your tweens and as a result i i think that he he is an interesting character because he's so young and this is kind of his coming of age um the eight years i think feels significant because or eight seasons because i think the again the the creatures of Redwall um, age differently than we might age, and eight seasons for them is a very long time. So we're we're kind of catching up 
much further forward in the future than in, you know, kind of the previous book. Yeah, we get some mentions of some familiar faces. Um, as you mentioned, um, we have John Churchmouse, we have Abbot Mor- uh, Mordalfus, um, uh, or Abbot Alf. Uh, we also have Cornflower and Matthias, and uh, we have Constance. Um, I think Basil is mentioned, but he's not there yet. Um, he's kind of lurking about. Uh, and we have Spike. There's a lot of familiar faces that are here. I think everyone is here, um, right? We have some yep. new characters that are introduced um, with Rolo um, and Mrs. Bankful. Yes. Yep. So we, we have some new faces, but all the faces that we knew from the prologue of Redwall, they're all here. Yeah, it's kind of a return to form. And a lot of this first part of the book, I think at least for me, is like, oh, don't you remember these characters? And I think that plays into a lot of how I feel about this book because we're not getting a ton of like new lore. Um, We're just kind of deepening our understanding of the characters that we visited in the very first Redwall book and seeing how they're still very much the same and how they are very much different. You know, I think... Matthias, for example, as we'll come to discuss, uh, is kind of a different character here than he was in Redwall. Yeah, let's talk about feel a little bit, because I know that we're only one chapter in, but uh, the the tone and the style of writing that Jakes has in the very beginning of this book feels very different for Redwall, don't you think? I do agree, and I think part of that is that leveling up that we talked about when we talked about moss flower, you know, moss flower is really much more narratively dense and there's a lot of stuff going on in that particular book. I think Madame Mayo kind of comes in and reigns a lot of that in, but we also just don't need to do as much heavy lifting because we already kind of know who these characters are. And Jake's, doesn't really need to explain the characters' origins to us a second time. Yeah, yeah, we we do get a little bit of an origin story for sure, but you're right with Matthias and Constance and Cornflower and even Matameo. Uh, we really don't get more of an introduction with them because of the the first book, which I think is a good thing. I, you know, I don't think Jake's needed to rehash that out by any means. But I couldn't help but feel in these first few chapters that even the description of Redwall and the scale and things like that have been corrected. Um, like yes. the scale is 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 kind of corrected in the descriptions of the Great Hall and their interaction getting ready for this party. And even um, cra- uh, I think he catches a, a it's not a grayling this time. It's um, what is the fish that they catch? Oh, shoot. Is it a, is it a carp? Yes, you're right. It's a carp. Yeah, thank you. Um, and they even kind of talk about, you know, getting the carp to the table, which was different than the scaling that we had with the grayling and then the other foods that are there. So I think that Jake's is very much aware of some of the things that didn't work as well in Redwall. And he's already quickly correcting that in this first chapter and what we kind of see a little bit more in chapter three as well. Yeah. And that sensory description is still there that really really great tight prose 
Um, he really relishes in a lot of detail, perhaps not in this first chapter, but in subsequent chapters as we continue to explore more of Redwall. I get so much more of a sense of place in this book than in Redwall, for sure. So in chapter two, Slagar the Cruel, a hooded fox, brings up a cart of slave children to St. Ninian's church. His band of vermin scout out the area for supplies. Slagar is deliberate in hiding his trail from Redwall, but plots revenge against the Abbey. Oh boy, you know, those chapter twos always have that introduction of the villain for sure. Um, we're getting into that, uh, that Jake's Redwall formula. Uh, I really liked this introduction of Slagar. I think that the description of his hood, it being this kind of diamond pattern, um, purple and, and red um, hood, uh, creates a lot of mystique for who Slagar is. And we also get an interesting name drop here at the very beginning of Vich. Um, we don't really know who Vich is, but there is this this name drop of Slagar asking where Vich is. Um, and we see a little bit into that next chapter. Yeah, this is a great introduction to one of the all-time greatest villains of the entire Redwall series. Um, yeah, I think everything about Slagar is just really unique. Um, he's very menacing, and yet he's described as having like this Harlequin mask, which we associate more with kind of like a jester sort of character. Um, so it's, I think, really interesting to see the development of this character as we're going to find out, you know, who Slagar is and what Slagar does. Um, but a great, great introduction to a villain. And we see that he's not so interested in brute force, right? He's not interested in like taking Redwall for himself like Clooney was or, right. you know, kind of lording power as Sarmina was. Instead, he's very focused on a singular goal, and that goal is revenge, and we don't necessarily know why. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, we don't necessarily see it in this chapter, but um, we, we learn um, that Slagger the Cruel really is an apt name for um, this, this individual simply because he may not be as strong as Clooney was or as power mad as Sarmina was, um, but we learn he definitely is cruel. Like he has some um, methods, let's say, that are definitely frightening. Yeah. So in chapter three, as festival preparations are underway at Redwall, the Abbey elders bring up young Matameo's behavior to his mother, Cornflower. Even as they're discussing Matameo's various mischiefs, Matameo and a young rat mouse named Vich are caught in the middle of a fight. The fight is broken up, and both youths are sent to their various punishments, Vich to scrub the kitchens, and Matameo to receive a dressing down from his father, Matthias. Yeah, so as I mentioned in the previous chapter, um, this is we, we start to learn very quickly that Vich is not who we think Vich is, simply by that name drop that kind of happens at the end of the last chapter. Um, this scrap, uh, I, I think, uh, I, you don't really have to be eagle eyed viewer to, to see that this scrap is intentional. Like Vich is obviously trying to pick a fight with Matameo to get, um, 
I don't know, these gears going, I guess, as, as part of a plan. Uh, we don't quite know what that plan is yet, um, but we, we can't help but root for Matameo in this instance because we know something is probably not very savory around Vich simply because of Slagar's relationship to him. It also brings up a really interesting point that is a source of contention through the whole series, right? We're told constantly that the Redwallers really are here to like treat every creature amicably. Um, and yet we find that, you know, creatures like Vich, who is pretending to be a woodlander, you know, pretending to be a mouse, but is really I a think rat. A mouse. Yeah, I think yeah. a mouse. Yep. Um, they can't just, they just can't help from being bad, right? And although Matameo gets scolded for what he's doing, it's clear to us, the reader, right, that this is an unfair punishment, that there is a kind you know, kind of a sense of justice for the prejudice that Matameo holds against Vich and the way that Vich is just very irreverent to the other Abbey creatures. I'm not so sure I like this angle of the story so much. This is one of the points of contention that I'm going to have throughout a lot of the different books. But I do think that it's interesting that we're shown kind of this character of Matameo, who we believe to be really mischievous and everybody kind of thinks is just kind of wasting his own legacy as the son of Matthias. But we see a much nobler side of Matameo that exists. And he's very much similar to like Matthias in how Matthias reacted to Clooney or treated a lot of Clooney's horde. You know, he's the same kind of mischievous, although I think that Matthias was probably a lot less transgressive. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I, I couldn't help but feel like Matameo, even in this quick introduction, is a bit of a hothead because he just, he jumps right to blows. And I think that that is, the intention there is in the relationship with Matthias that he too um, has kind of like that warrior blood or um, has expectations of being a warrior, but he doesn't quite know how to do that yet. Um, and I think that that's apparent in, in this interaction of um, also his fear of having to be confronted by Matthias, knowing that he's going to get a dressing down because of his behavior. Like he's the son of a great warrior and uh, Constance uh, is quick to remind him of that. And so he is, um, you know, he's got a lot of weight on his shoulders because of it. In chapter four, late at night, Vich enters Slagar's camp, explaining that he got into a fight with Matameo. Slagar grills Vich about Redwall's activities and plans to break into Redwall around the time of their great celebration. Vich dreams of getting revenge on Matameo for the fight, and Slagar looks forward to revenge against Matthias, Constance, and the whole of Redwall Abbey. I don't have a lot of notes for this chapter, simply because it's like, I mean, the gears are in motion. We already kind of knew that this was going to happen. It's just a confirmation of what we were supposing would happen in the previous chapter. Vich is in some kind of um, agreement with Slagar as a spy for Redwall, and Slagar has this motivation um, to take the Abbey and has a, an intimate knowledge of the Abbey too. Cause doesn't he tell him to grease up the doors and he, yeah. he, he kind of knows exactly where the doors are at. Yes. Yeah. To prepare for their exit, not even their entrance, uh, because Slagar is not necessarily concerned with how they get in. 
He's concerned with how they get out, which again is very different from a lot of the other characters. Um, Clooney never really managed to get anyone on the inside until the very end of Redwall, right? And he did so with another woodlander. Slagar is a lot wiser and craftier than even Clooney was. And I think that's what it, this is what makes him such a compelling villain. He knows the plan before he's going in to the fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's a lot more kind of cool and calculated too. I think in this this chapter, it's described that he um, like sits and sleeps on his own with his mask on as well, um, which I think is very telling to um, that that Slagar doesn't really trust anyone. Um, he he solely is. Um, self-sufficient in his his plan that a lot of individuals don't even know his plan either like what the full extent of the plan is yeah he's a very compelling villain i will say when i first read this which was like (laughs) i think it was maybe 21 or 22 years ago uh, i did not catch that vich was part of slagar's kind of crew until chapter four and that was shocking to me um i was oh, like really? oh well of course he's a rat so naturally he's bad but it it kind of shocked me that he was uh part of slagar's crew and i i remember feeling the tension and being like oh no what's gonna happen <laughs> yeah i don't think um i don't i think uh, my surprise in this chapter is that he is a rat because I thought that Vich was a vole or a mouse. I did not think he was a rat. So that that was a surprise to me being a first-time reader. Yeah, he's younger, which we don't often see. We don't see very many young rats in this whole series. So in Chapter 5, Matthias sets out to discipline Matameo, lending him to Friar Hugo in the kitchens. Matthias challenges Matameo through his wisdom, although the younger mouse rebels against his father's expectations of him. As the abbey prepares for the coming celebration of the season, old guests begin to arrive and mingle around Redwall. All right. Yeah, this is where my boy Basil is getting prepared. (laughs) And I think uh, John Churchmouse is like, oh, my gosh, if Basil's coming, we don't have enough food for him. We're going to have to, like, (laughs) go into overtime, which I think is just a hilarious detail for for my boy Basil. Um, What are your thoughts on this conversation that Matthias has with Matameo? This is one of my favorite moments of the book, because I think that this sets up the whole of Matameo's arc for us. Matameo is distinctly aware of what he is being asked to do as this kind of fulfillment of legacy. I mean, think about the fact that Matthias is regarded as Martin Reborn, right, for this generation. And Matthias went on this big epic quest and he conquered an adder and he stopped the great war of this generation i mean confronted Clooney, the warlord who was spoken of in like children's nightmare stories and trying to live up to that expectation is kind of what makes matameo rebel you know he is unsure of what his role in this legacy is there's a lot of weight on him he can't just be himself he always has to be the emblem of the abbey and i think that that 
is a really unique interaction between Matthias, who was really impetuous and, you know, just kind of ran off to seek the sword of Martin and was on this quest to become a warrior. And now we see Matthias, who is the warrior and understands the weight of the sword and is trying to teach Matameo that way. But Matameo doesn't quite understand it. You know, Matameo is not a child of war. He doesn't know the weight of being a warrior or what that necessarily means. And the fact that everyone expects him to live up to Matthias's legacy and Martin's legacy is the very reason why he acts out so often. So I, I think this is a really unique idea about Matameo and having to try to live up to, you know, the expectation of legacy and whether or not he will be worthy of Martin's sword um, when it's passed down to him. Yeah, and I love that Jake's takes that in a very literal sense in their interaction because as Matameo enters um, Matthias's quarters, um, I think it's kind of like his office, or I don't quite remember, um, but they're in the gatehouse, so he has his own private area. And Matthias is playing with Rat Death. He's like swinging the sword around, like basically practicing his forms. And then he asks Matameo to do the same, and he can hardly lift the sword. And he's like, oh, you'll get there eventually. Like, you know, you're, you're kind of working on it. And I just love how Jake's includes that because I think it helps to paint the picture so well of the expectations that Matameo has is that, you know, like he's he's supposed to lift this sword one day too as the great Redwall warrior. And he's just not there yet. And, and um, yeah, it, I thought it was a very, very beautiful moment. And I, I really liked that inclusion here. I think we're starting to see a very different side of Matthias though. Like he seems, he's really, you know, kind of um, been brought into wisdom of his age that we just didn't really see in Redwall. And I think that's a great progression, although small progression in Matthias as a character. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about Matthias in book one. Uh, but one of the things I noticed is like, even as I was reading Matthias, I was not reading him in the same voice as I was reading him in Redwall. Agreed. Um, I totally you know, agree. It, it, it's like a, a night and day kind of difference. Uh, even the language that he uses, the way that he kind of carries himself is so much more mature than, you know, the, the young Matthias that we knew. Um, I'll tell you, I, I read Matthias a lot like Martin from Mossflower. I, I think there's so many parallels, especially as we get the further on, where I'm like, man, this this is a lot like Martin, especially um, the, the, the kind of setup of a, a group or a crew that's traveling and doing a journey that we saw on Moss flower. Yeah. There are so many little moments in this book that I'm going to highlight as being like, this is really amazing, <laughs> you know, storytelling, yeah. amazing character work. This is one of those moments where, um, if I had to put like a tab on a page or something, it's going to be in this chapter with a conversation between Matthias and Matameo. Um, because I, I really think this is just some of the best character writing that Jake's has done to date with these characters. Yeah, definitely. We have some more character development on the other side, though. And that's what we see in the next chapter with chapter six, I believe, with Slagar. 
Yeah. So in chapter six, Slagar plots to get into Redwall under the guise of being traveling performers and settles some dissension in his ranks with violence. Festivity preparation continues at Redwall, and Matameo has another altercation with Vich. I think this is the chapter where I texted you, Trevor, and I said, dang, Slagar is is ruthless because in this very short interaction, he's basically outlining his plan as circus performers to sneak into the Abbey. And one of the rats in the group um, basically kind of chuckles and says, well, what if that doesn't work? And Slagger goes on this performance to dazzle and, and captivate the, um, the audience of everyone that's there um, among his group and uses it to slay that bad mouthing, uh, rat in front of everyone and i'm like holy cow this is a this is brutal like this is just absolutely ruthless i i think that this uh, you know um clooney was needlessly cruel i wouldn't say that clooney was a good guy by any by any means um and had a disregard however he, this seems way more um tactful i guess of of slagar to do it this way that that is is bone chilling quite frankly i mean slagger's really intent about his instructions and he's like it's got to be this way this is the exact way it's going to go down and nothing can get in the way so i think for slagger to be questioned it is kind of an assertion that there's no belief that he can pull it off and slagger is the kind of dude that's like the trains are going to run on time no matter what. <laughs> and so, you know, kind of killing this dude, I felt like is just an assertion that like Slagar doesn't have room in his outfit for someone who's going to get in the way of his vision. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's one of the things that I love about this villain so much is that it's not just that he's cold blooded because he is. It's also that he's, exceptionally intelligent about this stuff. Yeah. It's something about the flair of how he does. It just seemed needlessly cruel. Uh, yes. Because <laughs> per- yeah, performative. something about that flair performative. Yeah. Great, great way to put it. Yeah. Uh, I also think this is the chapter where we get essentially a whole page just full of food descriptions <laughs> because <laughs> I it's outlining essentially everything that's being um, prepared for the festivity. And if you're ever looking for um, recipe ideas, just read this paragraph because it's absolutely packed with, uh, with things like candy chestnuts and berries and cream. Yes. Uh, different varieties of pies. <laughs> There's so much. I, I feel like this whole first part of the book these first chapters until slagar shows up is just a lot of joy and celebration and a lot of stuff that i feel is really like really interesting um kind of celebratory festivity and and the joy is juxtaposed with the despair that we see later it's one of the things i love about how jakes builds up this kind of sensory uh sensory joy yeah definitely i will say i I think i had a snack while i was reading this or maybe (laughs) shortly after for the next few chapters 
So in chapter seven, Slagar finishes disguising his forces and reveals his master plan. Under a ruse, he and his band will infiltrate Redwall, drug the Abbey dwellers, then kidnapped or kidnap the Abbey children for enslavement in the nightmare land of Malchoris. Ooh, Malchoris. Um, Trevor, what are your thoughts <laughs> on Malchoris? So I don't remember almost anything from the last half of this book. So <laughs> we're going in almost entirely blind. We get a glimpse of Malchoris in chapter eight, which is really creepy, but I like the sound of it. It just sounds nasty. You know, it sounds like a really creepy place. And I'm always for getting out of the realm of just Redwall and just Mossflower to kind of see what is out there in the rest of the world. Yes, I thought the same thing. This is, I, I thought, is this like a neighboring land to to Mossflower? Like, what is this? Because I am not familiar at all with this. Um, I I love the, the the idea. I mean, we just we just saw how cruel Slagar is. Uh, Slagger the Cruel makes sense. But I love this idea that he's not working on his own. He's working in behalf of someone else. And I think this creates a lot of uh, kind of like intrigue and mystique that isn't there uh, in that initial uh, first Redwall. So this got me really excited. I don't really have any other notes for this, except Slagger has a pretty foolproof plan. Um, he's going to um, he's going to they're going to come in as kind of a circus act. They're going to conduct some um, kind of sleep drought and then everyone's going to fall asleep and he's going to kidnap the kids. Um, and I think everyone is on board with that uh, after his uh, pretty gruesome display of violence in just chapters before. Yeah, it's a pretty good plan. And I think that what I like about it the most is that it plays in pretty specifically with what Slagar already kind of knows about the red wall uh, creatures. You know, they're very charitable and they extend hospitality to anyone who asks. And he knows that this can be used for evil, you know, <laughs> like he can exploit this. And it's one of the ways, again, that sets him apart from Clooney. He really is very crafty. And he knows how to kind of work the system to get what he wants. So in chapter eight, we move to the kingdom of Malchoris. And Nadaz, voice of the host, pronounces to a giant stone statue of Malchoris that construction is slowing on account of the lack of slaves. All expect the return of Slagar soon with a load of new slaves for labor. Yeah, man, this, I'm not going to lie. This chapter kind of spooked me a little bit. Um, I also read this chapter on Halloween and I was like, man, there is something spooking there about Malchoris for sure. Um, one of the things that stood out the most to me is that this conversation that Nadaz is having, the voice, voice of the host, is with this white statue of a polecat and I, I didn't know what a polecat was so i looked it up uh it's a i think a black-footed weasel uh i'm sorry a black-footed ferret and i thought that that was really interesting because um 
ferrets, uh, weasels and ferrets are are kind of these you know bad creatures, but we've always seen them to be in the subservientness of or subservience of um, cats and rats and foxes. Um, so what is a ferret doing as as kind of the head of this? I don't. We don't actually know if there's a a living entity with this. All we know is that there's a statue. Yeah, there's kind of a disembodied voice that speaks through the statue, almost like a Wizard of Oz kind of thing. Yeah, that's what um, I want to. But I think as we're gonna find, there's a lot more kind of body horror in this book <laughs> than in any of the other previous uh, two, and and. Part of that, I think, you know, kind of plays in together. There's this darkness, um, this kind of subterranean vibe to Malchoris, um, that I really, really like. It's kind of like, isn't it depicted as like being underground and like kind of like a land of shadow of sorts? The polecat was carved out of a stalagmite and a stalactite that had um, touched each other so it it kind of spans from the top to the bottom in this land and um, all the rats come in and they line up uh, they're all in robes and they kind of line up in a in a, a formation up to the the statue so um, and it sounds I, I believe there's some mentioning of um, distant cries uh of the, the slave laborers as they anguish yeah yeah from um, below there came the sound of chiseling and hammering the scraping of great stones being dragged and the crack of whips intermingled with the weak anguished cries of young woodland slaves imprisoned beneath earth into a life of forced labor in a way i feel like malchris is like the anti red wall right mm, like where yeah. red wall creatures live in joy and kind of the free uh, open air this is subterranean uh we even have these you know creatures these rats these whatever in uh robes you know kind of like a mockery of the red wall habits and uh Ooh, good and catch. yeah good catch i didn't even think about that yeah so in chapter nine, we move back to the Abbey and celebrations abound at the Abbey's summer feast, including physical competitions and songs of joy. As the Abbey dwellers enjoy their feast, Slagar knocks at the Abbey gates. Yeah, you have something that you really liked about this chapter, didn't you? Yes. So Again, I love the way that Jake's kind of sets up his dramatic timing. And this is one of those chapters that is just so excellently paced because it's all just a lot of celebration. There's like Rollo is running around this baby bankville who is uh, being taught body songs by Basil and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Ambrose Spike. Um, and it's I just, just got to say real quick, that is one of my favorite parts of this chapter, <laughs> simply because Basil gets scolded by Mrs. Bankville about it. And he's like, look, the, the lad just picked it up on his own. It's not my fault. It's so funny. And um, <laughs> he Basil just shines like a diamond in this chapter. I love him so much. This was such a funny interaction. 
Yeah, it's it's great. There's so much joy and so much energy. And I think that again, like Jake's brings in this prose that is very evocative of feeling and emotion. And I think that's what I love so much because he brings all of this glee, this joy. Um, and then at the very end of the chapter, the last line of the chapter is this startling turn of uh of mood and that is slagar um knocking on the gates like we yeah. know that the bad is just about to start yeah i have it in front of me it says the toast flew fast and thick laughter song good food sufficient drink and friendly company were making it a feast to remember then slagar the cruel knocked upon the door of the Redwall Abbey. It's beautiful. It's it's such a good it, it's such good writing from Jake's uh such great prose that I how can you not how can you not love it? <laughs> yeah. How can you not? It's so simple. It's it's great. I I I think this is a um a chapter that can quickly be overlooked because it nothing is really happening, but I think it goes to show um a lot of just Jake's as a good storyteller kind of telling the joy, the festivities, and then the hard reality that someone's out there. Yes, the the juxtaposition and the tension that is created by just putting in one line that completely obliterates the sense of like, this is a fun and adventurous time because the villain is outside the door. Um, it, it's just, I had chills when I read it. I was so uh, kind of astonished by how effective uh his tension is at that moment yeah so how how effective is that um how, how convincing i guess is slagar to get into the abbey well that's kind of a question for chapter 10 right um because i they definitely have their preoccupations as we come to find out because in in chapter 10 as Slagar does convince Matthias and Constance to be allowed entry to the Abbey alongside his vermin troop. And inside, Slagar's troop entertains the Redwallers and subtly drugs their drinks. As the celebratory feast continues, Slagar hypnotizes the celebrants and puts them all to sleep. Okay, I have a lot of I have a lot of notes on this chapter and the next. And the first is is this approach to get into Redwall not almost exactly what Clooney tried to do in the first book? Because he sends someone forward to say, hey, basically just ask for refuge and they're going to let you in. And they just come and do the same thing as a troop. They say, hey, we want to entertain you. All we're asking for is a night at the Abbey and we'll entertain your festivity and then we'll be on our way. And everyone... um basically kind of goads uh, Matthias into letting them in. Even Basil's like, come on, man. Like what's the worst they can do? Like we're armed. We, um, everyone's on alert. We've got Constance here. Like there's no reason why we shouldn't let them in. And I just couldn't help but feel like Clooney is rolling in his grave over this effortless, uh, uh, this kind of effortless attempt to get into the the abbey actually working i think the difference though is that clooney came in with a deliberate intent to conquer 
and was so arrogant in his ability to just get the Red Wallers to do what he wanted through fear. And Slagar is not that way. Like Slagar does play it straight. Like they're just a traveling troop. They just want some shelter. They're just going to come in for the night. They're going to repay the Red Wallers with some humor, some antics, some acrobatics. And Matthias does clock them, right? Like he knows that they are vermin and traditionally the red wallers do not get along with with vermin but he's reminded of this code of hospitality from redwall and slagar's counting on that code right slagar is counting on them to do the thing that they are consistent about knowing full well that he's about to stab him in the back and and I find it brilliant that Slagar does does that through the kids in the Abbey because the kids start cheering in unison, let him in. This you know let's let's have a party essentially, and th- that softens Matthias' heart to to allow them in. And I think that's brilliant on Slagar's end. I really do think that it's brilliant. I mean, he's we know that why he's there too. I mean, he's there for the kids, but um, yeah, man, I just. Pour one out for Clooney, who just couldn't couldn't walk in like they did, huh? Yep. Um, and it's clear, too, that, you know, Slagar, again, he's got a plan, and his troop knows the plan, and you stick to the plan, and it's going to work. And that's exactly what happens. He lures them all to sleep at the end of this chapter. And in chapter 11, at the break of the next day, the Redwallers wake up to discover Slagar's violence. Two of the Redwallers lay dead in pursuit of the fox, but the villain is nowhere to be found. As Matthias interrogates the only living witness to Slagar's deeds, he discovers the truth of Slagar's deception, that the children of the Abbey have been kidnapped, and Matthias vows his revenge. Okay, so (laughs) I have a lot of notes on this chapter. Um, The first is the black box of you if you will of them falling asleep and waking up is in stark contrast from one another because they're having the festivities they're watching slagar spin his little robe they're hypnotized and they fall asleep and the they wake up to the cries of rollo um not understanding why his mother won't wake up and matthias kind of checks with cornflowers like what is going on and then kind of sees where basil's at where constance is at they're kind of all waking up together trying to figure out what's going on and they're in the middle of um a a storm too like there's blankets and blankets of water that's that's falling on them that they're trying to basically find cover and scatter around and figure out what had just happened to then realize that they had been drugged. I think that this is such a good um, use of environment and um, the the change in time. Like I think Jake's pack packs in so much detail in this, uh, how these events kind of transpire that um, I just have to applaud him for. I think this is such clever writing and I love the inclusion of the rain because that's a huge part of what's going to happen in the next few chapters. But then the realization that the kids are missing, Matthias checks in with Cornflower and was like, no, I, I, I saw the kids. The kids were with each other trying to find shelter from the rain. And I'm sure they're going to be with Constance. And then they go down and the kids are 
you know, definitely gone. And I think that like as a parent, I've never really been in a situation like that, but I think that you can get comfortable with this like assurance that your kids are safe, that like you maybe start to like guarantee safety that's, you know, not necessarily there. And that I, it kind of hit me in the heart a little bit. I was like, oh my gosh, this would be a terrifying realization to, to find out that you had essentially, you know, in this, in, in this uh, black box, all these things had happened. Yeah. In our first kind of season, if you will, of Slayhouse Presents, we talked a lot about a literary technique that's called the objective correlative. And that's a term that was coined by T.S. Eliot. And it basically just means that in literature, the narrative, the setting, the description mirrors in a kind of, of, uh, excuse me, the description of the exterior setting, right? Mirrors the emotional framework for what's happening. So in a time of joy and jubilation, it is sunny, it is bright. There is a lot of warmth uh, coming from the environment. And that feeds into a sense of security, a sense of joy and um, kind of compassion. And then when you cut to it's raining buckets and it is gray and cold and misty, there is an uncertainty even to being able to see the world around you. That ties into this sense of dread, this sense of sorrow, this sense of mourning. And there are some genuinely sad moments in this chapter not just with baby Rolo, unable to wake his mother, but we also see the mourning between Basil as he discovers um, Friar Hugo. Hugo's body yeah. out in the woods. You know, um, this is one of the most emotionally effective bits of Redwall. I, I think in any of these three books, it's certainly up there in kind of like my top couple of moments of um, real emotional grief. Yeah, I think the mask got me a little bit more in Mossflower, but I totally agree with this because um, Basil and Friar Hugo, Basil is so distraught because he knew that Friar Hugo was completely innocent. He's like, he's never hurt anyone in his life. Why would they do this to him? Same with Mrs. Bankful, who was just trying to, she, she didn't drink at all because um, she was trying to watch after baby Rolo and that was her downfall. The fact that she's just trying to protect her child or care for her child is the reason why she, she is slayed. Um, there's a heartlessness to the attacks 100%. And I, and I like that um, there's this emotional pause with Friar, Friar Hugo where Matthias even takes a minute. I mean, his distraught to, to figure out what's going on takes a minute to try to um, kind of remember Hugo. Um, but then on a, I guess a funnier side of it, John church mouse gets shanked again. This is the second time <laughs> this dude has been just shanked by being a bystander in, in Redwall. He kind of needs to, I don't know. He needs to go somewhere else because he is just <laughs> always getting hurt in Redwall. Apparently first shadow just out of nowhere. And then, uh, yeah, guard, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I not, think too. Not one of the things that makes me so sad about uh, Friar Hugo is that Basil 
builds his connections to people through food. Um, it yeah. is like the number one thing. Anytime somebody talks about Basil, it's like, oh man, he's going to eat us out of house and home. <laughs> and so this camaraderie between Basil and Friar Hugo makes so much sense to Basil. Um, and I, I feel just absolutely devastated at the, the loss of Friar Hugo, who I think is such an in, important figure in kind of like the spiritual um, core of Redwall. You know, these simple creatures who are just goodwilled um, and, you know, kind of live these peaceful lives of passion for their craft. Yeah, I I totally feel the same, and the the interaction with Basil and and Hugo really got me for sure. Um, someone's cutting onions in in the room while I was reading this. One hundred percent. I the I think you're totally right. I think this chapter is one of the most emotionally charged that we've seen in the in the past. Well, in in the last two books, I think it's a really a really fair claim. Um, but we know that Matthias is going to get revenge, and that. Um, he's going to spring into action. One clever thing before we get to a little break is that Matthias is forced to wait um, because he knows that they can't, they can't pursue Slagar because of the rain and the circumstances. And because they were just drugged. I mean, they're exhausted. They're kind of incoherent. And so he says, we need to wait the night and we have to head out in the morning. There's no way that we can pursue them now. And I, I think that's a, a hard decision for Matthias, but I think that is super important. Um, and we kind of see later on why that might be important. But I thought that was a good a good decision from Matthias too. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Matthias is a very different kind of character. I think if he were younger, he would just run off and probably get lost in the woods. Yeah, yeah, I think he definitely would too. I think that he would be so eager to um, to start the quest that I think that he would end up putting himself in some kind of detriment because of it. But we're going to see what that pursuit is. Um, before we jump into the next chapter, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right, we are back and we are jumping into chapter 12. So in chapter 12, Matameo wakes enslaved by Slagar and is introduced to the rest of Slagar's slave caravan, including Alma the Badger. Vich promises to keep Matameo in line. Rain pours down outside, meaning that Slagar can help hide their tracks away from Redwall. Aha. Yeah. Um, I don't really have a whole lot of notes on this besides the fact that we meet Alma. Um, we know that she's part of the band because of that first prologue. This is why I kind of said, is this happening in real time? Because that means that she had been traveling with Slagar all the way up until the kidnap of the Mossflower kids. So um, I think that this is, uh, well, sorry, the Redwall kids, not Moss, Mossflower kids. Um, I, I like that we now get to learn more about her. She's a young badger, um, but she is very strong, like most badgers are. And she has a, a kind of a, a survival sensibility to her because um, she's from the Great Western Plains. Is that right? I think that's right. She says she's kind of a mountain plains badger. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so cool, cool introduction there. I like that a lot. Um, I don't really have any other notes besides that. Yeah, neither do I. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward chapter. Yeah. Um, we do see a little bit though of Matameo's kind of resistance. Like he's not going to go quietly. And I think that's an important component of his character in the next couple of chapters. In chapter 13, the Red Wallers pull together their resources in search of the missing children. Without tracks to follow, they mourn their losses and plot to head north in hopeful pursuit of Slagar. Meanwhile, Matameo and the other Redwall children do not take kindly to their imprisonment, finding ways to fight back against their oppressors. Slagar breaks the group up and singles out Matameo to tell him a story. Meanwhile, Matthias, Basil Staghair, and Jess Squirrel break off from the main search party in pursuit of Slagar's trail. Yeah, so this rain is definitely throwing a wrench in the whole plan um, because the rain has washed away a lot of visible tracks for them to be able to follow. And so they have a big search party, but they're really just kind of flying blind. They don't have a lot to go off of. Um, and so they, they have like kind of the two main parties that are trying to pursue Slagar. I don't remember if it's in this chapter or maybe it was in the previous chapter. When do we learn about Slagar's crazy three headed weapon? Um, and, and it's, uh, it's oh, one of the Bola. driving forces. Is it, is it, do we learn about it way earlier? I don't remember. I think we learn about it, um, in the previous chapter. Yeah. The Bola is, it, it's called a Bola. I don't know if you've ever seen this weapon, but basically it's just, um, it's kind of like uh, some rope with uh, weights on it, and uh, you you sling it around, and basically the momentum of the weights um, when the line of rope catches uh, whatever it is that you throw it at, um, the rope will entwine because it, it wraps around the person, and the the weights of the bola continue to swing around until they finally converge. Um, so it's a weapon of sorts in that it absolutely has enough force to like break bones, break legs, uh, but it's also a tool of subjugation. It's used a lot in a lot of like hunting. Um, you'll see bolas, uh, or, or kind of bola nets used a lot in like deer hunting, um, as a kind of non-lethal way of trying to trap something. Yeah, so this is one of the the biggest obstacles is that um, Slagar is very quick to show his effectiveness with this weapon. And I think he does a demonstration of throwing it at like a tree trunk or something and it pummels it and destroys it. And um, Jake's remarks in, on his accuracy with this weapon that if any of the kids were to run, that even if Slagar wasn't able to catch them, he could he he could hit them with this weapon um, with devastating effects. And there, we also learned that they're chained in a line and the, the kids are trying to figure out ways to better manage this chain um, where they're able to pick up the slack to give themselves a little bit more freedom and walking. They're not running into each other. Uh, Matameo is getting really frustrated with um, what's it, what's her name. Oh man, I'm blanking on her name. Cynthia Vole. Um, Cynthia Vol, thank you. Yeah, so Cynthia Vol, uh, she does not want to. She she's uh, very frightened by what's going on. 
uh, Matameo loses his patience with her and is, is scolded um, by, I think, Tess saying, you got to give you got to give her a little bit more uh, leeway because she's young and she's scared. We, we can't all be brave like you. And I, I thought that was yeah. a pretty cool character moment for Matameo because he's realizing he's realizing leadership through that because yes. <laughs> he he's realizing, OK, like I need to be a support for these other people. Um, I need to be strength that they don't have. And that's what a warrior is supposed to do. So I think this is a cool development in this, this kind of warrior warrior journey as they we're also learning about Slagar's very strict ways of travel. Now he pulls them off and he, he pulls Madame off in the corner and tells him a little story. Do you want to talk about that story, Trevor? Yeah, that story shows up in chapter 14. So in chapter 14, Slagar reveals his story to Madame he is the son of Sela the Healer Fox, formerly known as Chicken Hound. After escaping Redwall, he was attacked by an adder who paralyzed his face and disfigured him. Chicken Hound escaped and rehabilitated most of his body, but wears the scars of his encounter with Asmodeus on his face. Matameo doesn't believe his twisted tale, and Sam confirms a different version of events this is uh silent sam by the way from the previous book <laughs> yeah sam who's now talking yeah yeah uh so sam confirms a, a different version of events meanwhile matthias and his companions find slagar's abandoned cart deep in moss flower a young otter named cheek explains that the cart was abandoned by two of slagar's weasels and convinces Matthias and company to take him along for the journey. Back at Redwall, Constance and the Abbot think of how they might help the rescue party from afar. So I love this story that Chicken Hound gives us about becoming Slagar because he has a very twisted version of events. He asserts that he was held captive after the brutal murder of his mother and that the Redwallers chased him after a really unfortunate encounter where he killed Methuselah. And as a result of him having to hide from the Red Wallers, he was attacked by Asmodeus, dragged back to Asmodeus's lair, and then ran away. And he couldn't even get yeah. any kind of revenge against Asmodeus because Matthias killed the snake. Uh, you know, just after all of this kind of happened. And so he never even was never even able to take his revenge against the snake that disfigured him. And I, I just love how even Matameo seems to recognize this is not the version of events that actually took place. And that whether it be the poison or chicken hounds own kind of diseased, uh, sense of revenge he's convinced himself that his version of events is true even though it, it would be contrary to fact yeah this th this whole un i don't know uh unraveling of slagar's backstory um I, I suppose it would be a surprise if he didn't know if if you didn't catch on to this i feel like i knew this very early on especially in redwall um that slagar was chicken hound but there's so many interesting tidbits that are thrown in here specifically about 
um, that the fact that Slagar was able to survive because of his um, history in medicine because because of Sila that he was able to counteract this poison to rehabilitate himself to be able to survive. I think that's fascinating because I think that adds a lot of um, maybe credence to Sila's ability as a healer that we don't really see in Redwall. So I, I find that really fascinating. But um, I think it's Tim or maybe it's Sam remarks on the fact that it's possible that the venom from Asmodeus is warping his mind even now. And I think that's such a cool detail. It could be from Revenge, as you mentioned. We're not necessarily sure. But I think that that's a, such a cool detail to bring in that his cruelness may be a side effect of this injury and that it may even progress further because the poison is still within him. Could be the poison for revenge or the poison from Asmodeus. Either way, I think that's a really smart and and clever inclusion into Slygar's character development. Um, you mentioned body horror and the reveal of Slygar's face <laughs> is honestly chilling i was reading this and i was like how would i read this to my son because this <laughs> is <laughs> it really is just um it, it, it's horrifying um the, the description that his his teeth are decaying that he has basi basically overlapping uh like uh ripples of, of dead flesh from from the poison um and that's why he wears his mask all the time is to be able to hide that um it's a very cool moment. I think this is the moment that will stand out the most in the book. If I was to kind of reflect on it is this reveal. And um, yeah, I, I just think that this is no wonder Slagar is such a hallmark of villains in Redwall because of moments like this. Yeah, man. When I read this book for the very first time, I had not quite pieced together that, Slagar was chicken hound. I had some lingering suspicions. I was like, you know, what if this is chicken hound? But I remember going back to Redwall and pulling up what happened to chicken hound because uh, he was, of course, like it was alluded that he was bitten by Asmodeus. And as we know from Redwall, you don't survive a bite from Asmodeus. Right. And no so, one had has someone no one had survived. Um and mm -hmm. we, we saw the devastating effects of being bitten by Asmodeus, as we saw with um I don't remember the shrew's name that was swollen up. Um Gaussum. You do. Gaussum. Gaussum. Yeah, that's right. Gaussum. Um yeah, so we, we know the devastating effects for sure. Yeah, I <laughs> man, kid me was like was just blown away by this revelation. This was the no, I'm your father moment from Empire Strikes Back. It tied back to the first book in a way that absolutely had me out of my chair. I had to put the book down and go look back at Redwall and confirm that, you know, all of this had happened. It was such a unique experience and I wish I could go back to the moment in time that I did not know <laughs> that chicken hound was Slagar to experience that sense of wonder again because it's such a brilliant reveal and it is so compelling as kind of a, a, an origin story 
for one of this series' greatest villains. Yeah, I definitely agree. I I wish that I had that. Um, it was just spoiled way too early for me. Like, you know, seeing the cover of this book, reading Redwall, I'm like, oh man, I know, I know that that's Chicken Hound. There's no <laughs> way, you know, that it's not. But it, it is. It's definitely a cool reveal. Um, another thing that I kind of wanted to highlight from this chapter, we didn't really cover it too much, but um, is is Cheek the the reveal of Cheek where. Uh, Matthias and party, uh, I think it's um, Tess or not Tess, uh, Jess and Basil. Um, they find this trail um, to a car and, and the trail does seem very intentional. I mean, there's grease on, on some leaves. There's like a pike on the ground. Um, there's this cart that's, that's been withered and kind of left there. Um, and they find uh, an otter. Uh, I would say uh teenage otter i don't know how actually how I think old he's a child is. a child is he a child um well cheek yeah. is to his name to the the british slang he's very cheeky he is wheeling and dealing with the individuals he's intentionally calling jess jeff um and <laughs> making fun of basil's name like he clearly is antagonizing them just for the fun and the joy of it um, and they're trying to kind of keep him in line. They know that he has some very valuable information. And so they're kind of playing with his game. But um, Cheek is unlike any of the other otters that we've met, like in Mossflower, for example. Um, he really is kind of a, a stick in their butt. Like he's just, <laughs> he, he really is just bugging them a lot. I love Cheek as a character. I just, something about like a street urchin just always it works for me in any fantasy. And so the fact that we've got this very competent group, you know, you have Jess and Basil, and we know what they're capable of from the previous book. We have Matthias. He's this legendary figure. And then they just run around and find this street kid. And this street urchin is like, hey, take me along with you. I want to go for a ride. And I just will never yeah. get tired of that trope. I just love it. I do think it's funny how Matthias almost beheads him too, because he's sitting in the, the seat <laughs> of this cart and uh, has has uh, basically a cover over him. And so Matthias pulls the cover off and swings. And it's just the fact <laughs> that he like, I guess, scrapes the top of the the seat that he doesn't kill this kid. It's it's kind of a funny moment. But man, I would be terrified if I was cheek. I I just love that they they come expecting to find like some real danger and like they find the equivalent of the kid who just came here to skateboard, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's graffitiing on the uh on on the cart. Yeah, you're totally right. Yeah, he's uh I don't know, he's such a great fun little character. In chapter 15, Matameo and his fellow captives argue about what they should do about Slagar and their enslavement. Some of the children hope for rescue, but Matameo is determined to find some means of escape. As the party heads further southward, they encounter a newt who swindles them out of their few precious trinkets in negotiations to provide them keys to escape. And Slagar enslaves a young hedgehog named Jube, who joins the line on their march. 
Yeah, there's some cool moments with with Matameo here where we we know that the um that Matthias and and the group are in hot pursuit. Um we don't actually know where they're at though. And so this conversation that that Matameo has with uh Tim and Tess and Sam and Alma really goes to show that he realizes that if they want to get out of this, they need to they need to jump in. They can't just rely on mom and dad. They need to do something about it. And I think that, that that's clever of Matameo because he understands the responsibility of their, their situation and where they're at. Um, and I think that kind of matures him more than others in the group. I, I keep forgetting that Sam is part of this group as well. And he's the eldest, I believe. Yes, because, he is. Yeah. yeah. So he's the eldest and he's not really the leader. I mean, he's a source of confidence for them but matameo is the one who's leading a lot of these conversations and i think this kind of leads to his development as a character um we also get skrull the newt uh skrull is the (laughs) one who um absolutely swindles them out of um every possession that they they have uh he even has a very funny little chant as he's running away let me pull that up (laughs) um that I, i just thought was absolutely hilarious silly beast silly beast trusting me made you think i had a key stupid you clever me squirrel has pretty gifts for free um (laughs) and uh he 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 just runs away uh as he's running away though uh alma throws a dirt clod and just like knocks him cold alma bonks him yeah Which I think is such a good inclusion. Just like knocks him out and then he gets up and he's like, I'm okay, and just runs away. And it's just it, and then and then Slagar and the group are like, What is going on? And they're just like, Oh, I don't we're just we're just having fun, I guess. Um I, I like I love this inclusion. This is the second time we've seen a newt just be a nuisance, right. really. <laughs> right. Yeah. The first time we saw a newt in the series was when he was pretending to be like a, a deadly lizard. Or, yeah, he's pretending to be a snake, I think. Oh, no, not a snake. He was, yeah, a fire yeah, lizard, you're right. Uh, yeah, right, right. Yeah, a, a lizard. And then uh, and then he gets clobbered by Logalog, which is great. Yeah, he gets his tail knocked off. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I, I feel like I, I can't remember very many newts through the whole rest of the series, but I do like that they're just kind of these weird, random wild cards. <laughs> And they just kind of come in and, you know, uh, be general nuisances. Well, in chapter 16, Matthias's trail to Slagar's henchmen meets a literal dead end as they discover that the weasels who led Slagar's cart had wandered off into a swamp to drown. Still, the Redwall searchers hear a commotion, commotion nearby and go to investigate. Meanwhile, back at the abbey, Abbot Mordalphus has a prophetic dream encounter with Martin the Warrior, who gives him a clue about the whereabouts of the missing Abbey children. So there are a couple of things that I like here. First and foremost is that we know that the children are heading south, and yet Matthias is heading east. And there's this question from the Red Wallers, basically, of like, why would Slagar have gone out the gate he went to go east if he like if he were really going east, he should have just left through the east gate. And so 
we know that they're being misled and that's kind of why the red wallers are like searching for some clues to try to figure out how do we support matthias in retrieving the children knowing that we're not necessarily creatures of action like matthias or basil or jess and i think it sets up a a pretty unique kind of parallel story where the red wallers are trying to figure out you know kind of what's going on and um we get a whole lot more of that with this meeting between abbot mordalfus and martin the warrior in this dreamscape i love the way that martin kind of just steps into the story here and there in this kind of pseudo mystic kind of magical way yeah i definitely that that's the the most notes that i had on this chapter because i think that this is again the soft magic coming back around um of uh this kind of prophetic um dream that we've seen quite a few times especially from redwall um the lineage of martin re-embodied um that we're going to see a little bit later too um this is this is more of the same like it's it's not a surprise that this happens um well i guess it's a surprise that it happens because it's not to matthias it's to Mm-hmm. it's to alf so um that is that definitely is different um i have so much to say about this i kind of want to put a pin in this for our review episode but i think that this is that continued magic that we saw from um redwall and i i really hope that we get to a better understanding of how this magic works in martin the warrior and some of the the books between Mossflower and that first redwall book um, yeah. You know, time-wise, I hope that we get we get a little bit more details about that. Yeah, one of the things that I love about this part of the book, and and really the inclusion of the Red Wallers, is that it gives them more of a presence and something to do while the other characters are off having an adventure. And as a result, we get to see more of Cornflower, and we get to see mm-hmm. more of. Um, it, abbot mordalfus we get to see more of rollo and formal and kind of how all of these creatures contribute back to the story in a way that i felt was missing in redwall i felt like the redwallers didn't have nearly as much to do because it was always matthias going off on his journey and not necessarily the other redwallers having as deep an impact on the developing story and lore yeah, Jake's is clearly addressing that with this this kind of inclusion. And something I'd like to think he learned from Mossflower, because the quorum does do it so well in Mossflower. If you listen to our Mossflower review episode, um, we we um love Mossflower and we are are very quick to point out that that's one of the reasons why it's just the inclusion of a lot of these other creatures having something to do. Um, I do have, I'll kind of talk about it later, but there's some things I don't really like about this quest, but I think it's a cool start of the quest that happens with this vision from Martin. Yeah. In chapter 17, Matthias and company rush to the scene of battle to find Orlando the Axe, a great badger, fighting with a dozen hedgehogs who have accused him of kidnapping Jube. Matthias settles the misunderstanding and meets Jabez, Jube's father. Orlando and Jabez 
resolve to join the party in search of Jube, Alma, and the other Redwall children. And soon after they rejoin the trail, they encounter Skrull, that newt who bilked the Redwall children's goods. Meanwhile, Matameo and company continue their efforts at making their own escape from Slagar, who acts more and more suspiciously the further south they travel. I laughed so much during this chapter because it is genuinely <laughs> hilarious. Um, the fact that Orlando the Axe is he's he's battling hordes of hedgehogs, this hedgehog family, um, but he's not actually using his the axe head. He's using the pole of the axe because he doesn't want to. I mean, he could clearly kill all these hedgehogs, but the fact that he keeps swatting them away and they roll up in a ball and they bounce back and start like pricking him again and he's getting more and more frustrated because they're saying give us back jubilation and he's like i don't know what a jubilation is why are you doing this <laughs> it's such a comedic thing to happen it it genuinely is really really funny um it, it just I, had me rolling it just had me laughing i love javez he's such a stupid character and yet he's so fun because the whole the whole concept is that Jabez is just he's got 10 daughters and one son <laughs> and one son yeah that's right yeah and the, all the daughters are like kind of bumpkins too like uh, they, as we are, later. they are yeah. country bumpkins and there's this sense that like they're just ravenous they like mm -hmm. they literally he's talk food about at them. he throws food at them they literally talk about how after they eat a meal, the girls are all just still ravenously hungry. So hungry that they decide to start eating the walls of their house. Yeah, they start eating logs, just like the yes. logs that they live in. Yeah, um, it's such a funny story. But the, the, the funny, the other funny part of this is that um, when they find Skrull, they, they find that he's spying on them. And they they pin him down, and he quickly realizes I I can't really get my way out of this like I could. The um, other individuals, uh, the 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 Redwall kids, and so I it's it's funny because he's also just dressed to the nines with all the tokens of the parents, <laughs> like he's wearing just as <laughs> champion climbing you know medallion and the uh what is it the the abbot cord that was on matthias like yeah. he clearly had he has every evidence that he has interacted with the kids and it's so funny like <laughs> i don't know why he just he's so sleazy and he he just comes in and he's like uh, uh oh <laughs> like, yeah yeah and matthias tells him he's like you better start talking quick because so this is another thing that I absolutely love about this chapter and, and how we kind of see the continuity of Matthias's character. Because Matthias, if we remember from the first book, one of the things that really characterized him was his ability to just call order to anything. <laughs> like He really doesn't take any crap from any of the, the shrews. He doesn't take any crap from the sparrows. He doesn't take any crap from, you know, just anyone he comes around and so he sees these hedgehogs and this this giant badger and immediately calls them to attention 
And he's like, I will bring order to this conversation. Who are you? What do you want? Who are you? What do you want? We're going to settle this here or else I'm going to clobber you. Right. It's also funny that Orlando's like, I could have clobbered them a long time ago. Like, it's so funny <laughs> that he just like, he couldn't even have the opportunity to clear up what was going on. But he was getting frustrated to the point where he's like, maybe I'll just kill all these hedgehogs and just be on my way because <laughs> they're like annoying me. Like, I think Jake's describes it as like, he's, he's contemplating switching the axe around and just going like lethal yeah. mode. Yeah. <laughs> did it's... you did you catch the chapter art for this particular chapter? Because oh yeah, it's so it's good. a hedgehog. <laughs> I I might make this the uh, the podcast um, <laughs> photo, but it's Jabez is like holding up his fists like fisticuff style, like a an English boxer, and there's literally just a hedgehog <laughs> getting tossed in the background. <laughs> it's so good. I absolutely. You're you're totally right. I absolutely love this chapter. I th I think Jabez and his family are just such a riot. <laughs> it's so weird to get this in the middle of this very serious quest, but I absolutely It's genuinely funny. It. Like yeah, it's it is really funny. I had a lot of fun with this chapter. Right. Now, okay, next chapter I didn't have much fun with, but uh you can start. Oh man, okay. Well, in chapter 18, Back at Redwall, Rollo solves the riddle of Martin's prophecy as it was given to Abbot Mordalphus, leading to the founding stone of the Abbey. Meanwhile, Matameo makes an escape plan with his fellow Redwallers. Slagar spots Matthias and company approaching his camp and starts plotting out a trap. Okay. I, I know we've got this side quest to find, to discover something new within the Abbey. And I think it is cool that the Abbey is so big and has so many different um, mysteries to it that they can help to support through what's going on in the Abbey, right? They, they find this founding stone by following some ants um, through the uh, stock room where they're, the ants are congregate, congregated um and they're able to find the stone, which is kind of the the answer to the prophetic message that Martin provides. However, is this not just a super boring quest? Like, do you think that maybe it's just me? I was reading this and like, you know, the subsequent kind of portions, which we'll get into. And I don't the the solutions just don't seem very fun to discover compared to book one and two like we kind of had that in moss flower where we're learning about how to get to salmon dastrin in Redwall, it's obviously the fine martin's tomb this one just seems like such a snoozer to me <laughs> maybe maybe that's I, just being too critical I'm, I'm gonna disagree so the thing that i love about it is like the mysteries of Redwall are all about coming back into context with the living history of this whole society and i think that founding the or finding the foundation stone the first stone that was laid down on Redwall, is just such an amazing kind of awe-inspiring discovery and it leads as we know it, it it's going to lead to a lot of the history of Redwall as it pertains to abbas germain 
And I just love the richness of this kind of history that whereas Martin was the central figure of discovery in the first book, and there was, you know, bore the fighters notes in the second book, Abbas Germain is given so much more a central role, a kind of central feeling of being an important and integral part of the history of Red, Redwall. And I love that she is given the same legendary status as any of the other characters. So for me, I love this stuff. Like I absolutely eat it up. Yeah, I I I agree with your point of I think it is cool that Abbas Remain does get more of a spotlight and it's so great to see that after Mossflower and her vision for Mossflower and Lumhead and we'll kind of get into that in the, the the next few chapters. What I the point that I'm trying to make is that I think the riddles themselves are lame. Like I think the riddles themselves are not as exciting as riddles of books past. Like exploring Brock Tree and finding, you know, these things hidden throughout the, you know, the different wood elements in Brock Tree for Boar's Letter, or, you know, finding the stones going into Matthias's tomb and the riddles around that and the shield, I think are, are better riddles than the word puzzle that. Sure. It's I present I here. see that, but also like, I don't know, the child in me loved this stuff. Um, again, maybe that's just singular me. Um, I might be looking at this from very much rose tinted glasses of nostalgia, but anytime sure. there was a really fun riddle hunt for me, I went directly back to my excitement as a kid. It wasn't so much about, can I figure out this riddle? So much as it was, you know, kind of marveling in the history of this world and the way that the creatures interacted with it. So I think it's an entirely fair point to be like, you know, this kind of slows down the pace a little bit because it's so much more kind of lore driven than it is like action driven. Um, but but for me, I I do enjoy this stuff. No, and that's that's really fair. Um I'm I'm also kind of a dumb dumb idiot where I just didn't under I could not figure out the anagram <laughs> reading the book. So it could also be that I'm just dumb and I'm not good with riddles and these riddles are are hard. <laughs> oh, the riddles don't make any sense. And I I <laughs> you know, this is not like an Agatha Christie who done it. You know, this is very much Right. A, yeah, I guess see how they solve it. Yeah, yeah, I, I you you bring up really good points. That's kind of changing my tune on it. But I while I was reading it specifically the anagram, I was just like, "What is this? Why? What is going on, Jake? Why is this here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, is it? Yeah, because the I I will say when I got to the anagram, I'm like, I'm not even going to try to figure it out because I know they're just going to tell me in three chapters. So I yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> <laughs> So you're saying I shouldn't have broke out a notepad and just started writing things down? <laughs> really break up your experience reading. <laughs> well, in chapter 19, Formal removes the foundation stone of Redwall to reveal the tomb of Abbas Germain. With the help of Rollo again, the Redwallers discover an ancient riddle carved in stone on Abbas Germain's stone statue. 
Um, again, this is a lot more of the same. I feel like we can just speed run through a lot of this stuff because it 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 yeah. really just isn't so much about the sense of things as it is about like again establishing kind of that deep lore of Redwall and its founding history. The one thing I'll note is that as we learn more about Abistermain, the history and mystery of Loam Hedge comes into sharper focus. Yes, and that is something I'm particularly excited about because I think Loam Hedge is the biggest um, mystery I have with Redwall as a series. This is the second time that we've heard about it. Actually, the third, because I think Redwall... Uh, briefly mentions Wormhenge, but it's in Mossflower that we learn about the sickness that was there. Um, yeah. So I'm I am really curious to, to learn more about the history about it, and I'm especially curious about the Loamhen script uh, script that we'll get to a little bit later. Yeah, Loam script. Yeah. In chapter twenty, Matameo and the other captives hide in the river nearby the slave camp and narrowly avoid discovery by Vich. After outwitting Vich and Slagar's minions, the Redwall children wait to make their break. Simultaneously, Matthias and company spring Slagar's trap, entombing them in a cave. Um, this is a re really great little chapter where we see a breakout from Matameo. We see his leadership. We see his sense of intelligence for taking action. And rather, unfortunately, we also see the opposite with his dad as his dad just does the dumbest thing you can do. Oh, my gosh. A trap. Yeah, I have a I have a lot of feelings about Matthias in this chapter. Um, because it's so apparent that they're not in the cave, in my opinion. I mean, maybe that we're just supposed to know that from the the reading. Um, I think it's so clever that Matameo, they are able to hide under the, under the water by using the reeds to breathe. And they would kind of do mm -hmm. that as a game in the Redwall, in, in, in the lake that's at Redwall. So I think that's pretty cool that th he's kind of using this cleverness on his feet in order to avoid Vich. Um, he takes the brave moment of stabbing Vich in the foot with the yeah. with the dagger, which, by the way, is this dagger a switchblade? Like, are there switchblades in in Redwall? No, I, mean, I think it's just a dagger. Oh, interesting. I kind of read it as it was like he ha he turns a mechanism in order to make the blade appear, and I was like, "What the heck?" <laughs> like they they got Kershaw knives and in, in Redwall, but <laughs> no, I uh, think he just threw it out of his sleeve or whatever. Ah, uh, got it. Okay. Um, well, I, 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 th I think that the bravery of having to to take that moment, not necessarily knowing what the outcome is, it could show Vich exactly where they are. But Vich thinks that it's a pike in the water, uh, which I'm like, yeah, Stormfin, he's back to help us out. But nope, he thinks <laughs> he thinks there's a pike in the water, and then um, uh, they, they they kind of get spooked from being there. But they're ultimately discovered because Matthias. It, it kind of says that three things happen. Um, Matthias enters the cave, Slagar trips the trap, and the kids hear the voices of their, their parents crying their war cries as they go into the cave. And so they pop out of the reeds and they're ultimately discovered. I mean, they, they try to go to rescue Matthias, but, um, I just thought that this was so, like maybe the fault of a warrior. Like Matthias is so hot headed to try to, um, rescue and fight that he's not even really thinking clearly about what's going on and ultimately foils Matameo's 
attempt to escape. Like they would have been fine if it wasn't for that, you know, this, this trap kind of happening. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about it. You know, on the one hand, I think Matthias is exceptionally stupid. Um, <laughs> like earlier on, he almost just like runs into a swamp and it's really cheek and basil who warn him like hey maybe don't go in the swamp because that's already killed some weasels oh i forgot um, about that yeah yeah and then here it's so clear that there's a trap and they all kind of know like there there could be a trap ahead and and matthias is like let's just roll those dice and it's just so yeah, what are you doing <laughs> kind of stupid um I want to give Slagar more of the credit here. I really want to be like, he's just a really crafty villain and he outsmarts Matthias. And this really is a great plan for a trap if it weren't so obviously a trap. And I guess yeah. I put so much more blame on Matthias for being dumb than I give credit to Slagar for being brilliant. Yeah, I 100% I agree. I just think... Matthias is such a dumb, dumb idiot in this instance. And, um, you know, he charges in and everyone charges in with, with him. And because of him, because of his, I don't know, lack of wisdom, I don't know what you call it, his enthusiasm, he also entombs his friends, a, a young otter, yeah. um, Basil, and um, Jess. I mean, they're all stuck in there, too. Oh, and Orlando's and Orlando. there, too. And Jabez. <laughs> Jabez is with them, too. Oh, is Jabez in there? Hmm, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, Jabez is there. He's he's palling around trying to find Jube. Oh, that's right. Yeah, this is such a this is just such a weird. I don't know, Matthias. What are you doing, man? Why are you doing this to us? Why? <laughs> it's a it's great for tension, but I really am just like, man, Matthias, you done messed up. Well, in chapter twenty one. Back at Redwall, John Churchmouse deciphers the ancient Loam script riddle that was carved on the stone leaf taken from Abbas Germain's tomb. Uh, I don't know. Like, it's just another riddle chapter. <laughs> There's... Yeah, I'm bad with anagrams. We already talked about that. We can just. I, it, yeah, I, I don't I don't want to just like say I'm, I'm changing my tune that I don't think that this doesn't serve a point, but um. I don't know. It's it's it's, it's Gingerbeer's arm again. It's, it's just like I don't know why we're spending up. the time doing this. You know, like yeah, it, I, it's setting up the the mystery of Loam Hedge, right? That's the whole point. Is like this is written in Loam script. It is clearly it predates the Abbey by a whole bunch of years. Um, I love Abbas Germain's tomb, and I love the fact that this riddle is kind of delivered in. Yeah, I. I love that we get more Abbas Germain. I love that Loam script is kind of woven in. This predates the Abbey. And there's a lot of kind of mystery there to the founding fathers, or in this case, the founding uh, mothers or founding sisters of this Abbey. And so it gives a sense of, a sense of depth to the history of Redwall, but the actual, like, anagram itself i don't, I don't know it's, it's like you're never gonna figure this out on your own so just just keep reading i think it's funny that uh abbot alf Aldo, aldophis uh, also 
thinks the same thing because he's like why don't we just make a contest and whoever can figure out the whoever can figure it out i'll give you a pie as a reward like he's even bored with this whole thing (laughs) yeah i i I am the most interested in loam hedge and the loam script i think is really interesting um i do find it kind of a cop-out that um john church mouse is the only one that knows how to read it like you, you know you know in Redwall, Jake's paints um, uh, Mortimer, right? Or it's Methuselah is the Methuselah. one who, yeah, knows all these ancient scripts. And so it's convenient that he learns, uh, sorry, John Churchmouse learns it from Methuselah. But um, man, I just, I don't know. Yeah. No, I I, I hear you. I I feel what you feel, so... Well, in chapter 22, Matthias and company find themselves trapped in a cave and losing air by the minute. Outside, Matameo, heedless of Slagar, digs alongside his friends to free their parents. Slagar waits for the children to tire out so that he can recapture them for his slave caravan. There are two very smart people in this chapter. Slagar realizing that the kids can tire themselves out by digging, knowing full well that they're not going to be able to get to their parents. And Jess realizing it's getting hot in here. We're going to (laughs) die because I think it's, I think I don't remember who recommends let's start a fire. And she's like, we're going to burn up all of our oxygen. If we do that, there's no way that we're going to have to preserve. We're going to have to like, we're losing air. And I think, I think that's, clever both those characters to kind of realize what's you know the actual circumstances and trying to i mean one of them is trying to survive and then the other one is trying to use it to their advantage um again matthias is just being such a a dumb dumb like he (laughs) him and him and orlando are just like let's fight our ways out of this cave and that's not really helping yeah when the only thing you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail right and yes yes definitely totally his whole approach is like i can just fight my way through it's, no you you really messed this up yeah and they're trying to keep cheek from freaking out too because they realize he might jeopardize their error as well like if he starts to panic and freak out then it's going to make the whole situation work a uh, worse um i was mortified that basil was covered in by a huge rock i was like oh no is this is this going to be the end of basil um that's not the tr- the case he actually bounced back pretty quickly from that which was nice but um yeah that that was really the only kind of big jeopardy uh well they're they're all in jeopardy but you know what i mean this is this was kind yeah. of a short chapter and not a whole lot of a lot of details yeah well in chapter 23 john churchmouse and others at the abbey try to decipher the meaning of abbas germain's old riddle and they work out that it might have something to do with the old ruins of Loam Hedge. Meanwhile, Matameo and company are recaptured by Slagar, and Matthias's rescue party feels hopelessly trapped. Ooh, we've got something really cool that happens in this chapter, though. Um, what what do you think about it, Trub? I okay, so uh, like, man, I just um, I I. I don't know. I, I love the, again, I love the inclusion of Loam Hedge stuff. Um, I kind of love the 
stuff with Matameo where where like he's really just kind of sobering up to the situation. Um, Slagar, you know, kind of tricks him back into enslavement, which is a bad moment for Matameo. And yet there is this challenge, this spirit of challenge between Matameo and Slagar, which I think is kind of a quintessential moment for Matameo's growth. I, I really like that. Yeah, I think there's a soft magic thing happening here because um, Matameo basically hardens his vow against Slagar and says, you you know, if you don't kill me, you, you've goofed because I'm going to kill you. He's like, I'm <laughs> vowing to kill you. And it kind of freaks Slagar out. He's like, oh, my gosh. Like he tries to avoid his gaze because he feels like Matameo's gaze is boring down on him. But then we get this little glimpse from Tess, I believe, who says that when she is talking to Matthias or sorry, uh, talking to Matameo, she sees the perfect embodiment of Martin and Matthias looking at at Madame yeah. Mayo. I think that's the next chapter that that happens, but you're right. Ah, like, this shoot. Is, I'm off. This chapter. is part of the transformation of Madame Mayo. And I, I do absolutely love um, that, you know, like Madame Mayo has gone through the process. He's freed his friends. And then in his concern for his father um, and, and the rest of the Redwall parents, you know, that's what gets him captured again is is his compassion, his desire to, you know, assist his elders. Um, I think this is also kind of the turning point for Matameo because he realizes that there really is no sanctuary in his, in his parents. Um, as much as they want that help, that rescue, it really is on them to solve the problem themselves. Yeah, but Matthias, or sorry, Matameo believes that Matthias is dead. Like he, he fully believes yeah. that he's dead in that cave. So yes, he, he's, that's why I say that he's kind of like hardening a vow against, yes. um, a vow of revenge against Slagar, um, which is, I'm assuming going to be Slagar's downfall. I haven't finished the book, but I'm assuming that this vow <laughs> comes to fruition because, of what what's happening here are you sure he that that's in the next chapter or yeah um, I'm, I'm sure it's okay. in the next chapter it's in my notes here in chapter 24 the red wallers at the abbey still puzzle over the meaning of abbas germain's riddle but rollo assists in solving the puzzle leading the red wallers to another clue with the help of the sparrows of the abbey they prepare to retrieve the information meanwhile Matthias and company nearly suffocate in the cave where they are trapped. Matthias has a prophetic dream with Martin, who rouses him to make a last-ditch effort. Matthias makes contact with the Gaussim outside his cave, and his old friend Logalog mounts a rescue. Matameo, returned to the slave line, has undergone a dramatic transformation of spirit. I see in your notes now that dramatic transformation. Um, <laughs> man, I I apologize for getting these these chapters all all goofed up in my mind. Um, so let's talk about the Galsum because uh, <laughs> this is this is a a pretty funny moment that happens um, in this chapter. Yeah, I mean, so first and foremost, I love uh, that that Matthias has a dream with Martin 
where Martin kind of calls him out for being a, a doofus. <laughs> and he's he's like, you know, the answer to your problem is right in front of your face and you can't give up. A warrior doesn't give up. That Now is not the time to start. And so Matthias wakes up and he grabs Orlando's axe and uses that to basically get some air and establish contact with the outside world. And it just so happens that they make contact with the Gaussim who are hanging out outside. And he calls up his friend Logalog. And we remember Logalog from the previous book because Logalog and Matthias palled around, killed a snake together. They're old friends. And Matthias kind of has to be super direct with the uh, the Gaussim and be like, listen, bring me your Logalog. And they're like, how do you know we even have a logalog? He's like, yeah, Come on. they're like, who says we have a logalog? And he's like, I've dealt enough with a logalog to know that with the Gaussian to know that there's a logalog. <laughs> the funny th- part about this is that um, the the uh, the Gaussian that come and help him logalog is very quick to say hey if you help me out i'll help you out but i'm in the middle of this campaign with this other person who wants to be logalog so (laughs) maybe we can like help each other out it's so funny because the motivation for logalog to help matthias you know kind of outside of being friends is basically it gets him in good with the voters (laughs) to keep (laughs) his position yeah He's so a couple of things about Logalog's interaction with Matthias that I absolutely love. Number one, yeah, he he kind of is like, listen, I'm I'm kind of in the middle of some politics right now, so like, I mean, like we're we're going with you, like I'm absolutely palling around with you, but just understand, like, there's there's like a lot of stuff going on in my life right now. He's campaigning, one hundred percent. Yeah, I'm on the campaign stump. He's he's the, canvassing like, door to door, and that's why they came to the cave. Yeah, like you gotta you gotta give me some grace here. Uh, the other thing uh, that I love is that as Logalog is like trying to help Matthias out, he's like, "Well, yeah, of course. Like we're old friends. We'll we'll help you out." Uh, I'm gonna have the Gaussian prepare dinner. You know, we'll we'll have you out for dinner. And then he hears Basil's stag hair from inside the cave. And he's like, oh, no, I didn't realize you had Basil. Oh, yeah. He's like, shoot, I shouldn't have promised dinner if Basil's in there. The (laughs) the funny thing about Basil, too, is that while they're all losing losing air and after after Matthias kind of pokes this this vent in the cave, um, they're one by one trying to get the creatures up to get some air and he wakes up basil and basil's like what are you doing i was just dreaming about eating a salad <laughs> like why do you <laughs> the biggest a salad as big as a mountain so it's funny that as he's being brought to the you know the gates of the dark forest he's just his dream is to have a big salad i guess i love basil so much every time i, love I see too. every time basil's on the page i'm like this guy's so great i I think one of the reasons I love Basil so much is because he's like the perfect combination of like that goofball who is exceptionally good at his job. <laughs> yeah, he's and I really love smart the combination. Too. He really yeah, is. I love the combination of comedy and competence. It's just such a good match. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is a this is a very fun chapter and and really a fun way to end out the book. I mean, we have or this uh this first book. We we do have one more chapter, but um 
this this was kind of a relief of tension that was felt from the last few chapters that I, I definitely think is well needed, especially if you're a young reader. Um, and it's it I I genuinely cheered to myself like I love that it's it's Logalog is the one that saves them because yeah. it just it fits so much within the world. I love too that you know Matthias just set out with his his kind of two best representatives of Redwall which is Jess and Basil. And along the way, they pick up a street urchin, they pick up a country bumpkin, and and then they pick up Logalog. Oh, and Orlando. They have Orlando there, too. And Orlando, that's true. Yeah, Orlando, who, who, if I remember correctly for the rest of the book, I... I remember Orlando being a really standout character in the second half. Um, we'll see if that's true. It's been t- over 20 years since I read this book last. Um, but I, I I, just love this party that Matthias kind of puts together of this kind of ragtag group of different, different characters. So in chapter 25, the last chapter of book one, we're back at the Abbey. The Redwallers have solved Germain's mystery and receive a written map of the way to Loam Hedge, where they believe Matthias must travel. With the help of the sparrows, they create copies of the map to try or to fly off in Matthias's direction. Meanwhile, as they make their plans, a magpie listens in to the Abbey Secrets. Dun dun dun! Little cliffhanger there with with the magpie. Um, I have no idea what this is. I'm going to be honest. I I I don't. Uh, I'm I'm really excited to jump into book two because I I don't know where this is going with the magpie. I do think that it's clever that they kind of make an alliance with Warbeak to try to um, scribe the message that's on the yeah. um. I what is it the uh, the stone crow. Um, where they teach Warbeak to be able to um, use charcoal and paper to copy because she doesn't understand the language. Um, and I immediately thought, why don't they just use uh, Warbeak more? Why don't they use the Sparrows more? Because there's so many, even trying to go and track down Matthias, can't they just send the Sparrows out to like survey? So they this did. is a really, they did that uh, earlier in this, the book one. Um, when it was downpouring, they tried to send Sparrow scouts out to find where Slagar was. And oh, they sent but it was them, raining. They sent them north, and it was raining so hard that nobody could find Slagar. But the other problem was that Slagar didn't go north, and he didn't go mm. east. He went south. South, yeah. And, and the, the, there's no real reason for him to go south. Like, why would you go south? Um yeah, that's it. you bring up a, a a good point. I guess I had totally forgot about that. But I think this is I, I like this chapter because it had this kind of cooperation that makes more sense in a post King Bull Sparrow world. Um, and especially mm-hmm. with the, the alliance between Warbeak. I think that it's it's cool to see that. And I hope that we get more of that throughout, you know, the subsequent um, post Redwall books. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know anything about these magpies. Dude, uh, again, like it's been 20 some odd years since I read this Um, to put into perspective some stuff when they discovered Abbas Tremaine's 
tomb and the whole like ant thing i legit thought that was a scene in pearls of lutra like i i could have sworn that that really? was a scene of pearls of lutra yeah and hmm. as a result i was like oh i i didn't know that that was in this book um i was surprised to see so many references to warbeak and the sparrows because i did not remember the sparrows being any really significant part of the books um at all and so i was surprised to find how many references there were to warbeak and the sparrow kingdom as still being very much a part of the foundation and society of redwall um mm -hmm. and then the, the bit with the magpie i legitimately have no recollection of the back half of this book oh cool, <laughs> yeah so this is gonna be an adventure for both of us because yeah i um, i honestly thought that um getting out of the cave was like two-thirds of the way through the book or toward the end of the book and to find it in this just book one i was like wow uh i don't remember this book nearly as well as i thought i did yeah that's exciting because I, I i'm excited to jump in this together then and because i i think I think I have like a kind of a periphery of some of the red wall events or, or factions or groups. And so uh, I, yeah, I'm excited to, to go on this journey about uh, book two together since, since we don't remember. <laughs> yeah. 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 It'll be really, really exciting. So as we kind of close up, you know, that we like to talk about most memorable side characters and vermin, uh, I don't think that I want to talk too much about Slagar or about Matameo or Matthias because we'll save that for our big wrap up. But we have some interesting side characters that are brand new to this book. We have Orlando the Axe, we have Alma, we have Rolo, we have Cheek, we have Jube, we have Jabez. Who do you think is a standout for you? Oh man, you know that this is the Books and Badgers podcast. I always got to represent the Badger. Orlando the Axe is definitely my my new favorite character for this book. Um, his introduction is just so great. I he's um, the the chapter of him fighting off all the hedgehogs is genuinely hilarious. Um, <laughs> I think that he provides a good um, I don't want to say um, balance for Matthias, but I I think that he's he's just on par of like the kind of support that Jess and Basil give to Matthias. And so it's really cool to see him join into the party being kind of the muscle of the party. And also one of my favorite pieces of art from Redwall comes with, uh, it's, it's a, uh, illustration of Matthias and Orlando back to back. It's such a cool photo. I forgot the artist that, that created it, but you'll bet that I will put them on the Instagram to check out. It's definitely Orlando. You know, I think in terms of me most memorable, it it is just de facto Orlando. I remember Orlando the Axe and talking about Orlando the Axe's exploits in this book, particularly uh, way back when, when I first read it. Um, and even here we are 20 years later, and I remember viscerally my attachment to Orlando as one of the coolest characters in this book. Um, so it's definitely Orlando in terms of, of like what I actually find most memorable. But if I had to pinpoint the character that I find most delightful to read, it is Rollo and his 
body lyrics. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, I've said this before on the podcast, Trevor. I'll say it again. This is why you're the the older, wiser brother. Um, I may not like what you say, but I know what you say is true. I love Rollo's stupid songs. They're so funny every time. They're so good. They they genuinely are really great. And I I I kind of imagine that Jake's may have just sung these songs in his free time and <laughs> wanted to incorporate them into the book. And it's yeah, it's a great inclusion. Yeah. Well, how about some vermin? I kind of pinpointed uh, three different vermin characters that show up in this first book one. Uh, there's Vich, of course. There's Malchoris, and there is Skrull. Yeah, um, I I want to say Vich, but Vich just gives me um, Draco Malfoy vibes just way too much. Like he just yes, yes. I don't know. He's he's he the the him trying to be like an immediate foil to M- Matameo feels very forced in this. That being said, I do think he's very memorable because he's so integral to the beginning of this book. And um, he he plays into a lot of the driven story with Slagar and how he gets into the Abbey. So because of that, I'm going to say Vich, although I don't like Vich as a character. I think he is more memorable. I tend to agree. I remember Vich a lot more in this book. He is such a Draco Malfoy, though. Um like obviously this predates Draco Malfoy f- f- by forever. Um, but you know, just kind of like the spoiled jerk kid that you don't like because he's a mean bully. Um, absolutely an archetype. And, and I, I love to hate this guy. Um, whereas I think like Malchoris is also kind of an interesting character, but I feel like he's kind of the, Emperor Palpatine to Slagar's Darth Vader a little bit. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, so I, I think for book one, I, I I love to hate Vich. Like, I really love to hate Vich. <laughs> love to hate him for sure, yeah. Well, that is book one, Slagar the Cruel of the third book, Matameo. Um, this has been so much fun. I, I always look at our, our time recording and I'm like, man, I, I, I'm shocked as to how much we talk, but then realize just how much good stuff there is to talk about in these books. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing. So thank you for, for doing this Trevor, um, going through bit by bit each chapter. Um, just a reminder, um, if you're making this far in the show, um, and if you are looking to support us, the best way you can support us is to, uh, leave a review um, wherever you're listening to this. Uh, that could be through Apple Podcasts or, or, or Google Podcasts or whatever they call it now. Um, that's a great opportunity for for uh, supporting the show, and, and we, that goes a long way with us. So we thank you for doing that. Um, if you uh, want to get in touch with us, you can email us at booksinbadgers at gmail.com. That's books in badgers with an N in the middle of books and badgers. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram and threads at books and badgers. Um, we've been doing a lot of kind of fun things on there like polls. Um, we've also been doing some cover 
comparisons. And that's also where you can send us any questions that you have. If you don't want to go through the email, you can just uh, direct message us there. Um, and I think that we're going to do a listener episode this season. So um, get your questions in early for that so that we can get them prepared for that episode. Um, and then lastly, if you like our voices, particularly Trevor's voice, uh, you can check him out at Slate House Presents. Um, because you just went to World Fantasy Con, I know you have lots of cool things lined up, uh, but you also have good things lined up prior to that too. Yeah, I've, I've got a lot of stuff on the horizon. Um, I've been talking to a lot of different authors and booking them over the next uh, couple months. So you can listen in for episodes talking to uh, Krista Carmen, to Usman T. Malik, to uh, Brian McCauley is on the show pretty soon. Um, Amy Avery is going to be on. I've got uh, Delilah S. Dawson from Star Wars um, <laughs> kind of lined up for the future. So I, I think it's going to be a really, really fun several months on the show if you want to swoop in and listen to some very interesting interviews from some very interesting authors. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're right out of spooky season at the time of recording this. But if you always want that spooky season to keep going, Slate House Presents is the best way to do that. So go ahead and check that out there. Um, again, thank you so much for, for joining us and getting this far. And uh, be sure to listen in on book two, episode two of season three. Thanks all.